Let us stand for prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the gift of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, Thy Word made flesh. We thank Thee for the Word of truth given to us in the Holy Scriptures. May that Word take deep root within our hearts and bear forth much fruit in our lives. This we pray in that name which is above all names, the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Deacon Praveen assures me that on our website we have a number of subscribers to this, but uh, not the case on um, YouTube. I went on YouTube and I found it, and it was one subscriber, um, and uh, and that's uh, Jared and his wife out in Illinois, so... Greetings, Jared and family out in Illinois. Uh, wonderful to have you watching. And Jared and I have actually communicated uh, via, uh, uh, oh, sorry, not Illinois. Anyway, we've, we've communicated. No, he is Illinois. Hi, Susan. Okay, we're continuing our study, uh, the portion on Holy Scripture. Holy Scripture um, is foundational for us. As you know, uh, Anglicans hold the Catholic faith. We have no faith of our own, per se, but rather we uphold the faith, the creeds, the councils, the sacraments, the worship life, uh, etc., of the ancient Catholic Church. But we do so under the authority, not of a synod, not of a council, not of men or a man, but of the Holy Bible as God's Word. So we are the Bible Catholics. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus and is fulfilled by Jesus. This is one of my favorite things. In fact, in the Old Testament, one way of interpreting the scriptures is called typology to understand most of the Old Testament as pointing beyond itself to the fulfillment of things, to the fulfillment of the covenant in the coming of Jesus Christ and in, in through the life of his church. So this is called typology, where you see things in light of the coming of, of Jesus. Okay. I'll give you uh, one example uh, of typology. Um, We meet a very strange figure in Genesis, and we're told a little bit more about him in the letter to the Hebrews. And this strange figure is Archdeacon Mike, no, is Melchizedek, is Melchizedek. And uh, we we know um, that he was greater than even our father Abraham in the covenant, because Abraham offers a tithe to Melchizedek. And in those days, the one who was considered to be lesser, Lord have mercy on that situation, an ambulance just went by for those watching, um, those who were considered lesser would offer a tithe to those who were greater. But who could be greater than our father in the covenant, Abraham? So this is kind of a strange thing. No one in one sense is greater than our father Abraham in the covenant, 
in, the, when, in Old Testament times, and yet this Melchizedek is. We know that he is known by the title Prince of Peace. We know that he is a priest, a king of righteousness. We know that he is a priest of the Most High God. So he's greater than Abraham. He is the Prince of Peace, the King of Righteousness, and is priest of the Most High God. But while he's a priest, he's also a king. He's priest and king. And in those days, often sacrifices were, that were offered were sacrifice, uh, animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice. But this Melchizedek, this Melchizedek offers what as a sacrifice? No, not himself, but bread and wine. He offers bread and wine. And we were told in, in uh, the letter to the Hebrews that he has no genealogy, no beginning and no end. So to whom does this character Melchizedek point? He's greater than our father Abraham in the covenant. He is prince of peace, king of righteousness, while a king also priest, high priest, or priest of the most high God. He offers non-animal sacrifice, but uh, an offering of bread and wine. He has no genealogy, no beginning and no ending. To whom is he pointing? Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Right? Jesus is the only one that fits that description. And so Melchizedek, a character we see in the Old Testament, 1,800 years before the birth of Christ, is truly pointing to Christ himself. We're told in the letters to the church by Peter, it's either, either in First or Second Peter, I know it's not in Third Peter. Do you know how I know that? There is no Third Peter, right? right. Um, and that, uh, that the ark... And the, the flood was a type of baptism. That is, where sin was washed away and eight persons were saved through water. Right. So do you understand what typology is? Okay. Things in the Old Covenant that point beyond themselves to Jesus into the life of his church. This is typology. Okay. Um, obviously, uh, Pharaoh and the people of Israel being slaves and in bondage in Egypt, and they are delivered and they are brought through the Red Sea, and all of this is really a foretelling, uh, but also a foreshadowing of what? Our salvation in Jesus Christ, where we are redeemed from Pharaoh, Satan, and from our slavery and bondage to the kingdom of sin and death, Egypt, foreshadowing that, brought through the waters of the Red Sea, baptism, where we are then in the wilderness and being formed as God's people. And what are we fed with? The word of God. God reveals to them his commandments. right? And then he feeds them with the bread of heaven, a foreshadowing of Holy Communion. So you see the whole story of the 
Passover, and in, in that too, the Passover, right? That, uh, that the angel of death passed over those who were covered, households were covered in the blood of the Lamb. So we who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we too are spared eternal death. Right? All of this foreshadows, that's called typology. So the whole Old Testament points to Jesus and is fulfilled by Jesus. He said those scriptures bear witness about me, John 5, 39. To the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and I mentioned that in my sermon today, Jesus proclaims that, quote, all the Old Testament scriptures contain, quote, things concerning himself, Luke 24, verse 27. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus insisted that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to do what? Fulfill them. Fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17. He promised that not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished in Matthew 5, verse 18. So the scriptures, and this is mentioned in the 39 articles, the Old and New Testament, Old and New Testament, is truly about our salvation in Christ. It's God revealing himself to us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And so it's the Trinity. Where is the Trinity first revealed in Holy Scripture? Although in a somewhat concealed way. Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3, 1 to 4. What is concealed in the Old Testament is fully revealed in the New Testament. What is fully revealed in the New Testament is concealed in the Old. So it's there. And so Genesis 1 to 4 points beyond itself to the truth of the Trinity. The Old Testament is truly the Word of God. Luther taught that it is full of Christ and the gospel. And we must remember that when Jesus was teaching from the scriptures, there was no New Testament except for Jesus himself. And so he's preaching from what? The Old Testament. The Torah. Right? And yet he teaches the fullness of the gospel. But he does so out of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is the Word of God. Are there things in there hard to understand? Yes. There are things in the New Testament hard to understand. Peter himself refers to the writings of Paul as Scripture. By the way, the only place in the New Testament that identifies parts of the New Testament as Scripture. We never get a list of what is canonical in the New Testament itself. But Peter does acknowledge the writings of Paul, as scripture. But he says that people can twist them, and he admits some of his writings are hard to understand. Right? It 
It both prepares for and proclaims the coming of a Messiah for all nations. That is the Old Testament. The Old Testament both prepares for and proclaims the coming of a Messiah for all nations. The New Testament. The New Testament is God's revelation of salvation through Jesus Christ, who is God's incarnate Son and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29 I don't know about you, for, but for me, well, there's many parts of, of the, the Holy Eucharist, the Mass, that touches me, but one of the, the part, uh, places is where we do uh, hold up the body and blood of Christ, that cup which we have blessed, which is a communion with the blood of Christ, and that bread which we have broken, which is a communion with the body of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. We hold it up and we say, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold Him that taketh away the sin of the world. And of course, right from Scripture, and then often I'll add, uh, and happy are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is also, which is also uh, scriptural. Sorry, I lost my place. Here it is. The gospel presents the Son of God in his actions, teachings, passion, death, resurrection, and glorification. That is his ascension into heaven. In fact, we will celebrate uh, this week the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and then next Sunday on Ascension Sunday because sadly in our culture so few people are able to attend during the week now. But we will celebrate it both during the week and then uh, on, on Sunday, Ascension Sunday, which is when our Lord... Um, having come forth from the tomb and is resurrected, resurrected, now ascends above all creation to the right hand of the Father and uh, is glorified. Okay. In the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles, we see the giving and work of the Holy Spirit creating, empowering, and sanctifying the church, the body of Christ, until Jesus returns in power and glory. In Revelation, we have Christ's prophetic vision of last things and the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth. This study, by the way, is... Um, is very well written, and you know you can go on the ACNA website and find it and download it yourself. I mean, I just think it's really great. Except they just referred to the Acts of the Apostles as Acts, and that's one of my pet peeves. But aside from that, <laughs> right? Bishop Charlie, our diocesan bishop, is the chairperson of this committee, so I guess uh, he can call it whatever he wants. But anyway, um, I, I want to do a little side note. Um, to explain something for a second, because I shared this, we had visitors today from the First United Methodist Church, 
and they were asking me some questions afterwards, and I, uh, one of the questions came up regarding the bells, and I said, well, at Holy Trinity, we sometimes toll the bell, and sometimes we ring the bell. And I said, uh, bells are used to communicate. For example, if you're uh, up in Vermont going for a walk on a path on a snowy day and you hear bells coming down the path, what is that communicating to you? <laughs> dinner time. Well, that's another community. That's my favorite bell, the dinner bell. Yes. No, that a sleigh is coming, sleigh bells, right? That's what sleigh bells are for, so that people would know that the horse and carriage was coming down the path, right? Um, Diane just mentioned the dinner bell. That's a way of communicating what? That it's time for dinner. In a village, if the bell tolled, which means where it's struck from the outside, dong, if it told, what did it communicate to the whole village? Someone has died. So if you know that uh, 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 Uncle Isaiah in the village is very sick, and he's uh, 86 years old, and the bell begins to toll, and it rings 86 times, it's just been communicated to the village that Uncle Isaiah has passed. That's right. And sadly, if a woman is giving birth and the bell were to toll once, then it was communicated sadly that the baby had passed in childbirth. Right? Those are very, very solemn moments. Often when we remember moments of great solemnity or sacrifice, we will toll a bell. For example, on Memorial Day, or that great song by Gordon Lightfoot, the uh, Emmett Fitzgerald. It says at the end that the, the bell tolled uh, 27 times for each member on the Emmett Fitzgerald. It's a way of communicating uh, moments of great solemnity and great sacrifice. But if there was joy in the village, a birth of a child, uh, or a wedding, or uh, freedom, <laughs> right? If the village were to overthrow an enemy, what, what would the bell do? Right, it would ring on the inside. Ding, 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 ding. We believe that in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, the Mass, that it is both, in one sense, both a time of great solemnity, as we remember in reverent awe, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word becoming flesh, but also marking with great solemnity his death and sacrifice upon the cross and the participation of the uh, Holy Communion in the death of Jesus Christ. So there are times when we toll the bell, but there are also times when we ring the bell freely as well. And what does that communicate? That this is also a great celebration. This is the victory of God. This is the wedding banquet. This is the great feast. And so we both toll the bell and ring the bell because we are both marking 
something of great solemnity in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also celebrating with great joy his victory over sin and death. Okay. Here endeth the lesson. Okay. Uh, so to go back to the scriptures, there, um, these are things that we are living out in, in the Eucharist. We are living out in the Eucharist. Any questions so far? Not about the bells, but about Holy Scripture. Oh, yes, Diane. Amen. What Diane just said is that it's important for us to ask the Holy Spirit to open the Word of God to us and uh, to un- help us to understand uh, God's Word. And e- perhaps even more so uh, than understanding it, simply to receive it within our hearts. As I often think, I don't always understand God's Word, but I still want it within me, bearing fruit. All right. Um, I, I do wish that persons would pray when we gather here uh, for the Holy Eucharist, Lord, uh, open my heart to, to thy word, that my heart may burn within me as the scriptures are open to me this day. I really believe it would make a change in the hearts of, of many people. Thank you, Diane. That's an excellent point. Okay. Um, holy, what is the relationship between Old and New Testament? Holy Scripture is comprised of many kinds of literature written over many centuries. Yet it is one book revealing one divine plan for the fullness of time. Ephesians 1.10 The unity of the Testaments can be seen by reading the Old Testament in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament should be read in the light of the Old, just as the Old makes best sense when read through the lens of the New. Each Testament sheds light on the other because both are the true Word of God. As a God, oh, here's the quote. I should have prepared more. Here it is. Um, Each testament sheds light on the other because both are the true word of God. As Augustine taught, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. That was, uh, I was, uh, maybe someone else said something similar, but the idea that what is concealed in the old is revealed in the new, and what is fully revealed in the new is already there, although somewhat concealed in the old. And so here's that quote by St. Augustine. The New Testament lies hidden in the old, so it's there. All that we believe, the Holy Trinity, one God in three persons, 
that salvation is in Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection, his glorious ascension. The, the authority of God's word. The sacraments, all there in the Old Testament. According to the scriptures. So that's a good quote by Augustine. What is the relationship between the word of God written and the word of God, Jesus Christ? The Son of God is the divine word from all eternity. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, John 1, 1 to 2. This divine word, quote, became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. I sometimes believe, although you always want to be careful when you're messing with God's word, but it's helpful for people to understand that the word of God is the second person of the Holy Trinity. The word of God is God the Son. The word of God is the Son of God the Father. It is the Word of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, God the Son, who becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ being born of the Virgin Mary. Does everyone follow that? So I sometimes will help people to understand that by tweaking um, John 1, 1 and following just a bit, and, a bit by saying this. In the beginning, that is before the creation came forth, was the Son of God. And the Son of God was with God the Father. And the Son of God is God. The Son of God was in the beginning with the Father. And the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Does that help in the interpretation a bit? Okay, don't, don't go home and make that change in your Bible. You're not supposed to change the Word of God. All right, that's just an exercise to, uh, to help. Okay. The Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of the Son, Galatians 4, 6, and therefore the Spirit of the Eternal Word, inspired the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament, 2 Peter 1 to 2, John 14 to 26. In fact, um, uh, where, where's... Uh, there, there you are. Richard, you usually have your Bible. You have it with you? Would you look up John? That's the, the gospel narrative of John. John 14, 26. And Mike, would you look up Second Peter 1 and 21? And just whoever has theirs first, uh, read it out loud. And as loudly as you can in the hopes that maybe the microphone will pick it up. What's that? Well, now I have to get up. I don't know. John fourteen twenty six, Richard. You have it, Mike? 
All right, 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Wow, amen. And is that where, right above that, where we're warned not to have our own private interpretation? Wow, awesome. Yep, that's awesome. And so we are told that we are not to have our own private interpretation of Scripture, right? But rather to understand it in light of what we have received from every generation of the church going back to, the, to Christ and the Holy Apostles. Richard, do you have yours? No. Yeah, the gospel, and it is, I'm trying to find it now, John 14, 26. Mike has it. That's, we'll let Mike do it. Go ahead. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All right. So it is the Holy Spirit that will bring to our remembrance, that is, to make the teachings of Christ, a present reality for us. The Holy Spirit does not teach something new, but rather brings to mind what has been revealed to the church, to creation in Jesus. And Jesus was clear that he came not with his own message, but that he speaks with what the Father has told him, right? And so we have that in the Holy Spirit. Two very good passages. How were the books of the Bible chosen? Wow. Now, before I get into what, what they say, I, I just want to address a little bit on some of the extremes that we, you hear out there. On one side, you have the, the more Catholic position. And when it's taken to its extreme, it can be somewhat misleading. And that position goes something like this. We know what books of the Bible are the Bible, that is the official list called the canon, okay, the 27 books of the New Testament, for example, um, because the church fathers and the early bishops of the church gave us that list. And so it's by the authority of the church uh, under the Holy Spirit that we have this particular list. And for uh, a long time, um, we didn't have the New Testament exactly as we have it today. In fact, it wasn't until the 4th century, the mid-300s, that Athanasius, a bishop of the church, gives us the list exactly as we have it today. And so the authority of Scripture, yes, comes from the Holy Spirit, but through the church which has established the canon, but did so in the mid-fourth century. And it really comes from, what books are the Bible, comes from the ancient Catholic Church. And that in very early on, remember, no part of the New Testament was even written for the first 20 years 
uh, following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the church was proclaiming the faith of the gospel right, and of Jesus using the Old Testament, but not the New for about 20 years. Paul begins writing his earliest letters in about 53 AD, give or take. Okay. That's the, the, uh, the, the Catholic position. There are a lot of elements of that that are true. It is true that Paul wasn't, didn't begin writing, and he was the earliest, probably, of the New Testament writers for about 20 years. And the gospel was proclaimed for those whole 20 years, right? Even before the New Testament came to be. Um, you know, that is true. And yet, the, uh, the gospel was, was uh, and what Jesus revealed was already there in the what? Old Testament. So they did use the scriptures, but they used the Old Testament to show um, that uh, what has been revealed by Jesus is truly the word of, of God. It is also true that some of these books traveled around together, and some were added and some were, were deleted, and it wasn't until the mid-fourth century that it really solidified. Um, but the other side of that coin is this. For the most part, the, the canon developed rather quickly. And pretty much by the end of the apostolic age, which let's say uh, is around the year 100 uh, to 110, the last books being written approximately 96 AD. Um, the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John, and the book of Revelation, right? And so pretty much a few additions, a few deletions um, in different parts of the church, but pretty much the canon began to solidify in its, the majority of the books um, within the apostolic age itself, okay? And of course, we can't underestimate the role of the Holy Scripture speaking through the church in establishing the, the canon. Um, we also have to remember, and this is often left out of the more extreme Catholic argument, that the early church wasn't uh, busy um, defining things unless they came under attack. In other words, the early church didn't go about defining the canon until the canon was truly coming into question, right? And people were beginning to add in uh, other texts that did not belong there. Um, that's when the church addresses things, right? The creed was written um, not for the fun of it, but because certain things were coming into question and they wanted to give a simple, uh, articulated statement of the essence of the faith, okay? So it's not surprising that the canon of Scripture was not defined until much later. So does everyone see the strengths and some of the weaknesses of that argument? Can you see that? Then there's the other side, the more evangelical argument, that uh, you, know, you have the Bible, and I always joke, it's as if Jesus was ascending into heaven and went, oh, wait a minute, came back down and said, I almost forgot. Here's the Bible, King James Version, leather bound, my words in red, right, and maps in the back. Right. 
here, here you go. That's not true either, <laughs> okay? That's a bit of an overstatement. And I remember talking to um, uh, 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 an evangelical, and I consider myself an evangelical as well, but um, a more ex- extreme evangelical, and saying, well, what about the development of the canon? How do you do, if, if the ancient Catholic Church was pretty much essentially evil, then how did the canon emerge from that same church? And he said that was the one miracle of God, <laughs> right? The one miracle of God. Um, and so the, the, <clears throat> it's not true that um, at the time of Jesus' ascension or even for 20 years that even anything of the New Testament was written, right? And so, and it did take a little bit of time. By the end of the apostolic age, it was solidifying, but it did take some time. And the church really did have an involvement in it. It played a role under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we want to avoid those two extremes when we look at how the Bible came together. Does that make sense to people? You want to avoid those, those two extremes. It's not true that a bunch of Catholic bishops got together and said, these are the books, and that's it. And it's not true that um, the King James Version was given to us by Jesus. <laughs> okay? there, there is a history to the development of the canon, but one under the Holy Spirit working through the church. And there's truth on, on both sides. This is clearly the Word of God. It is clearly of God, right? That, uh, and there's power and authority in God's word. That would be the even more evangelical side. But truly that the church did play a role under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in helping to solidify the canon and to establish it as the rule of, of faith, that all things necessary for salvation would be found therein. Okay. All right. Every, does that make sense to everyone? No one's saying anything, so I don't know. Yes. We, yeah. It does. And that was actually what my sermon that I left home on my desk today was, was about, is that if we believe this is the house of God and this is the gate of heaven, then we are commanded by God to make that known. And that's not always a comfortable process. That's not always a comfortable process. And it does take discernment. I will sometimes tell people... Um, that they may not be the people within their own family. Remember when Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's rejected by, by them? And he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own, in his own home, right? Um, uh, I know that I tend not to preach to my family unless they ask me a specific question, you know. Hey, Mikey, I think they got that with that Life Serial ad when I was a kid, you know. Hey, Mikey, he likes it. But they'll say, hey, Mikey, you know, I have a question, da-da-da. Then I'll answer. But otherwise, I don't go because I'll, you know, they might do what they tried to do to Jesus when he returned home, take me to the edge of the cliff and try to stone me and throw me over or something like that, so... Absolutely, yes. Yes. 
Amen. Yes. You know, um, last night I was at a, at a city uh, event and was sitting with some other pastors from the area. Um, two rather successful churches, one very large and, and the other um, uh, much larger than us. And when they were talking about growth in, in the church, um, I asked, you know, so... What programs or, uh, you know, have you used for, for growth? And both gave the answer that their growth has come from the fact that their people invite people. They are so filled with joy and believe in what their local church is doing that they can't help but tell people about it. And I have to say that sometimes in Anglicanism, in North America anyway, not in other places in the world, but that's where we're, we're missing. John and Charles Wesley, I almost mentioned this because of our Methodist visitors, would mourn over people who, except for illness or travel, weren't in church. Because if we believe what happens on the Lord's Day truly happens, we would mourn anyone who was absent and couldn't have that experience unless they were sick, and then we would want to bring it to them, right, uh, as well. But our hearts would also mourn uh, uh, just as much, if not more, for those who do not know, for those who do not know, and wanting to make that known, right? And so, absolutely. And I, for, for uh, how long have I been ordained? Since 95, so what's that, 23 years 23 years I've been to many conferences on how to evangelize, how to grow the church. I've never been to one that has given me the magic bullet. Except for one thing. Churches primarily grow by the joy uh, of the membership spilling over into their lives outside the church. Father Isaac, loudly. This was Bill Heibel's view in the um, study we did years ago called Just Walk Across the Room. He said, we should pray for opportunities to be able to share. We should look for those opportunities, and we should share when they present themselves. And then he said, after that, don't worry about it. God takes care of the rest. And what a relief it was to me, seriously. I said, all I have to do is pray for opportunities when they present themselves to me, then share, right? And then give it to God. Yeah. G you know, give it over to God. We were just up in Toronto, the bishops and the um, archdeacons and the diocesan council, and a large group of the archdeacons um, got together at, at, uh, um, at night for uh, additional meetings uh, in the pub. And... Um, uh, uh, we were all in um, uh, regular uh, clothes. And so the waitress, her name was Jessica, and she was quite friendly, and she was talking to us. She finally said, so are you here for meetings? Oh, yes. And they said, you know, Michael here is from the Boston area, and another one said, I'm from B.C., and another one, I'm from, you, you know, Manitoba, and, and so forth. Oh, my goodness, she said, 
what group are you with that you're from all over like that? And we almost all simultaneously said, the church, you know? And uh, so, you know, she started, you know, talking a little bit about, well, you know, she was raised in the church for a little while. Her grandmother tried to get her to go and, you know, but, you know, life got busy and, you know, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But now she's, she's, um, I forget if she said she was engaged or not, but very serious with a young man and, and so forth. And, and she said, um, but don't worry because um, I try to be a good person. And I said, well, that's great. Keep that up. <laughs> way to go. As Bishop Charlie always says, way to go. Uh, keep that up. Um, but that's not going to do you squat for, <laughs> for eternal life. And so in uh, a 30-second little spiel, because she, you know, she had a bunch of tables, and I had to keep her interest, or she would have given me the I'm very busy and out of there. In 30 seconds, I gave her the gospel and then wrote down um, my name and number and, um, and then the website for our diocese. And I said, uh, and all of this is waiting for you. you. You just have to now reach out for it, right? And so we have to, so we pray for those opportunities to present themselves we then take the opportunity, and it didn't take a great deal of effort, right? I mean, she basically asked, right? And then, now I just pray for Jessica that God will take care of it. And that may affect her children and her children and her children's children. We have no idea, you know? No one thinks twice if they find a brilliant restaurant yes. to tell people, Absolutely. And Absolutely. Right, that is evangelism. We can know all this about the Word of God, and if we aren't sharing it, we may as well not even be here. Yeah, you dig it back up. Diane, and then we'll, we'll close. <laughs> Father Michael told me we should. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm going to get a pencil. You can give it out. It can be a number two. Um, that's, yeah. I mean, the, these are the, the important things. As I say, it is important to have a tabernacle, I believe, in the church. But if Christ is present there and not in us when we go into the world, then I don't know how important it is that he's there. And we have the lights shining here all the time but if the light isn't shining through us 
I'm not sure how important it is that it's shining here. And we have the Word of God, but if we don't become the living Word of God and learn how to share it, then I'm not sure how important it is that we have the Word of God. In other words, it's all about sharing it and making it known. Right? One cannot be an evangelical by just reading the Bible and hearing the words of Scripture. One's an evangelical because they are the living Scriptures uh, in the world. Right? So. Anyway, we're going to end there. And some of us have a meeting next door. Thank you for coming. Uh, like I said, this is on the internet. If you want to download, we're going to continue with Scripture next week. But boy, uh, this document I just find incredible. I couldn't have done a better job myself. So I'll end on that cocky note. God bless. <laughs>